0: This uh, question on the screen, pretty important question, right? Also kind of a strange question, uh, given that we're standing in a Bible-believing church where presumably uh, most of you know the Lord, value His Word. You certainly are familiar with Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that it's becoming a, a question that's harder and harder to answer in our culture. Uh, in fact, I thought I would do a little research, you know, any good pastor does research, right, to make sure you find the answers to the questions at hand. And so, uh, of course, like any good researcher, I went to the number one authority on the matter, uh, Wikipedia. And uh, you'll be interested to know what Wikipedia says about Jesus. Uh, uh, First of all, I was really excited to know they actually have a picture of Jesus at the Wikipedia site. That was helpful. (laughs) <laughs> that was helpful. But the, it's a long article, as you might imagine. But the first sentence, I'm sure you can't read that. Let me zoom in for you. says this, Jesus, also referred to as Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Christ. Watch this. A first century Jewish preacher and religious leader. Now, sadly, that's the extent of what most people think about Jesus today. I mean, he's the most historically attested human being who ever lived. We know because he told us so that he's fully God and fully man. But his historicity is not in question, at least by any thinking person. But who is he? And from a secular perspective, he was nothing more than a first century Jewish preacher and religious leader. So I dug a little deeper. I I found this in Encyclopedia Britannica. Again, a religious leader revered. In Christianity hmm now he's not just a religious leader but there's a certain group of people who revere him well what does that mean well not surprisingly the American Atheist Society is one of those groups that in fact does deny the very existence of him this is from Frank Zindler a former president of the American Atheist Society and a current member of the board of directors he said it is more reasonable to suppose Jesus never existed it's, listen to this. It is easier to account for the facts of early Christian history if Jesus were a fiction than if he once were real. I would love to sit down and talk with Frank uh, in a loving, gracious way, but to find out how in the world it could be possibly easier to account for the facts of early Christian history if Jesus was a fiction. How did the early disciples of Christ all give up their lives for a fiction? And why? And how, how, why has history for the last 2,000 years been shaken and shaped if Jesus was nothing more than a fiction? Well, what else do people uh, say about Jesus? I thought this was interesting our, given our current political climate. Mikhail Gorbachev was the eighth and last leader of the Soviet Union, as you may recall, and he was also the General Secretary of the Communist Party, so the leader of communism. And to a communist perspective, Jesus was simply the first socialist. Is that who Jesus is? What about some of the most popular celebrities of our day? I mean, we could spend hours reading celebrity pontifications about Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a couple that will make the point that pop culture is no more reliable than Wikipedia or an agenda-driven encyclopedia, or the former leader of the Communist Party when it comes to answering the question of who is Jesus. Oprah Winfrey said this. In the context, this is because Jesus claimed to be God, which she said means he was the biggest egotist that ever lived. How dare he think he's God? Or Jim Carrey said, The energy that surrounds Jesus is electric. I don't know if Jesus is real. I don't know if he lived. I don't know what he means. But he does, Jim Carrey does like to paint pictures of Jesus, and he claims his paintings have healing qualities. So there you go. Who is Jesus? It's a seemingly simple simple question, and especially if you've got a Christian background and have developed a basic biblical worldview over the years, but to the average person today, it's by no means easy to answer. And that's because the prevailing mindset in our world today is one that rejects meaning and certainty and definition in favor of a far more hazy and vague and mystical approach to life. I mean, are there really answers definitively to anything anymore? Words don't have inherent meaning, which means that quantifying objective answers to fundamental questions like who is Jesus is difficult. Empirical truth is an elusive target in this openly pluralistic society. And the really sad thing is that even within the so-called Christian church, the answer to this question is slowly fading away, as hard as that is to believe. I believe it's a sign of the times, the great end times apostasy. But one of the fastest growing religions in the United States, uh, for the past two decades anyway, is called the emergent church. The emergent church is really the natural outworking of the New Age principles that came on the scene, at least in the Western world, and dominated American society back in the 80s. And sadly, because the church was asleep at the wheel back then and didn't really take a stand but let it creep in uh, to the pews, consequently we're reaping the benefits of that a generation later. Many Christians today are characterized by a profound naivete in which anything spiritual-sounding is accepted as valid. The standard of acceptability within evangelicalism is how does the spiritual make me feel, not what does the Word of God say on uh, the matter. The emergent church. As an illustration of what this uh, viewpoint is all about, here's a a leading book uh, from 2004 by one of the leading spokesmen from this view. And just the title of the book alone should give you pause, right? Because what is orthodoxy? Orthodoxy is a statement of doctrine, a statement of fact, a standard to which we hold true. And so churches, for example, who abandon, say, the inerrancy of Scripture or the deity of Christ or the virgin birth or salvation by grace through faith alone are, are said to have abandoned orthodoxy or are unorthodoxed, or they've deviated from orthodoxy. But to those within the so-called evangelical framework of, of uh, uh, this particular movement, it's more too exclusive. You've you got to broaden orthodoxy. You've got to make it generous and welcoming and embracing of orthodoxy. Now, what will really help you understand their perspective is the subtitle to this book. You can't possibly see it, but it's those small letters down there in the bottom but this is the subtitle a generous orthodoxy and this author says the subtitle why I am a missional evangelical post-protestant liberal conservative mystical poetic biblical charismatic contemplative fundamentalist calvinist anabaptist anglican methodist calvinist or catholic green incarnational depressed yet hopeful emergent unfinished christian In other words I am all things I'm not any one thing don't put a label on me I am whatever I need to be well by the way, one of the chapters is in, uh, in his book, let me go back there, uh, is the seven Jesuses I have known, and even more to the point of what we're looking at this morning, would Jesus be a Christian? Those are a couple of the chapters in his book. Well, there are not seven Jesuses, as this mystic supposes, there's only one. Who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? It's an all-important question. See, you cannot gain eternal life and forgiveness of sins. You cannot avoid eternal damnation in a literal place called hell apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And since none of us uh, have ever... Well, Gary, where's Gary? How old are you? But I'm just, uh, for my purposes, what are you, 60, 70? Okay, so I just wanted to clarify. So none of us have walked with Christ. I just want to make sure. I wasn't, wasn't really sure. None of us actually walked the earth in the time of Christ. Uh, so so, so we, we can't really speak from firsthand knowledge apart from what he has revealed to us in the living, written word of God. So there are two words of God in Scripture. The living, incarnate word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for our sins the second person of the eternal Godhead, and the living written word, the 66 books of Scripture written over a period of 1,500 years by some 40 different human authors in three different languages, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so if we want to know who Jesus, the incarnate word, is, we've got to get into the Bible, the living written word of God. It's the only standard for our beliefs attitudes and practices. Now, the book of Hebrews addresses this issue of authority and revelation. See, the early church needed to be reminded on what do we base our beliefs? What is the superior revelation and authority for our beliefs? Who is this Jesus Christ in whom we have placed our trust for salvation? And how does he relate to past revelation that we learned and studied for generations in Judaism? So You know, this idea of mysticism is fascinating people today, and it really hasn't changed, you know, for 2,000 years. As we're going to see, the early Christians in the late 60s AD, the people to whom the writer of Hebrews is addressing his book, were fascinated with the spiritual realm, particularly angels. And nothing is different today. Millions of men and women got up this morning and looked at their horoscope. Seeking guidance from satanic celestial signs of the zodiac instead of the truth of God's Word. More and more people have become hooked on Ouija boards or channeling or other mystical techniques to obtain guidance in their relationships or work or life in general. Belief in reincarnation has exploded as people seek an explanation for what happens to them after they die. This fascination with otherworldliness encourages people to call on fallen angels, which they call avatars or spirit guides, for guidance and to awaken the hidden powers within them in order to reach their greatest potential and live their best life now. It may surprise you to discover just how prevalent this mystical experiential approach to religion is in our American Western culture. It crosses all social, economic, geographic, and demographic lines. And as I mentioned a second ago, it also... It's troubling to see how this brand of mystical contemplative spiritualism has infiltrated Christianity and is widespread in churches. The problem is those who seek an answer to the question, who is Jesus, through some subjective experiences, are missing it entirely. The only standard for our beliefs is the Word of God. So who is Jesus? The writer of Hebrews addresses a group of Jews who had become Christians, these were devout Jews who had heard the gospel, become convicted of the fact that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They believed that He died and rose again for their sins, and by placing their faith in Him, they had become born again and part of the Christian community, as it was beginning to be called by this time. So this is about 30 years into the church age, maybe 34, 30 to 35 years into the church age. So the church is three decades old. It's beginning to mature. It's beginning to spread westward. And also it was beginning to upset the Roman leaders who were quite happy with the arrangement they had with Judaism. But after having uh, murdered Christ in cahoots with the Jewish leaders these followers of Jesus were becoming quite a problem. And it was upsetting the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, they say in Latin. And so Christians were becoming the target of intense persecution. By 67 AD, when Hebrews was most likely written, Nero was on a a tear, burning Christians at the stake, separating families. Anyone that associated with Christianity was in danger. And in the midst of these unsettling times in that day, these early Christians, early in their faith, and early in Christianity as a whole, were struggling. And they they turned to angels as a source of inner strength. In fact, some of them were worshiping angels and praying to angels and erecting monuments to angels. They were just fascinated with angels. So much so that they forgot about the central figure of their faith, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews exhorts his readers, and by extension us today, to remain faithful to the one who saved them because he's far superior to any mere angel or any other spiritualized, mysticized idea that you might concoct in your mind. As we begin this series through the book of Hebrews, the simplest statement of a theme for the entire book that we will be looking at over the next several weeks and months is hold fast to your faith, hold fast to your faith, because Jesus is better than anything else the world has to offer. I've titled this series, Unshakable Faith, Trusting God in in Trying Times. If ever we needed help developing an unshakable faith, it's now. If ever we, there were trying times, it's now. There are going to be many pressures brought to bear on individuals and families and churches in the weeks and months to come. We're going to be called upon to stand firm on our convictions. But this requires you to know what you believe. And knowing what you believe requires that you think critically and study the facts and not just swallow everything you hear on TV from so-called experts. You know, the experts are not always Experts. Experts once thought that African-Americans were only two-thirds human. Okay. Experts. Experts thought that smoking cigarettes was healthy for pregnant women and made ads all about it. I can show you some in our series on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. We're going to go through some of those deceptions in the weeks to come. We've got actual ads that were played. Doctors in their doctor suits smoking a cigarette. Uh, four out of five doctors recommend Camel, you know. Experts aren't always the experts. But we do have one expert, and that's God. And he's revealed to us the infallible truth in his, his word. If ever we needed a reminder that Jesus is our one and only hope, our source of strength, and the one we can trust, it's now. So I want to give you, in chapter 1, three reasons to trust Jesus as we answer this question, who is Jesus? You know, the writer of Hebrews jumps right in. Uh, No introduction, no salutation, no, hello, how you doing? This is too serious a matter for the author and too troubling a time to commence with small talk. He gets right to the point, and the point is Jesus. Historically, we're talking about a time frame of 67 to 69 AD. We actually don't know for certain who wrote the book of Hebrews. Early church historians attributed it to Paul. I tend to think that's the best evidence but the Bible itself is anonymous on it, so we don't want to land too uh, hardly on that, uh, on that conclusion. So I'll just refer to him as the author. But certainly the Apostle Paul, uh, his teachings or uh, themes are all through the book of, of Hebrews as we will look at in some cross-references. But the early, these early believers were contemplating, abandoning, associating with Christianity And going back to Judaism, because Judaism was sort of still a safe haven. I mean, we know all about the early first century Jewish leaders. They were like many of the wicked kings of Israel in days gone by. There was always a remnant. There were some devout Jews who still believed in Yahweh and God and trusted Him. But most of Judaism at this time was in cahoots with Rome and was was more of a political posture than it was a, a true genuine faith. And for that reason, you weren't persecuted if you associated with Judaism. But boy, if you were seen in the upper room meeting with a bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ and singing songs and praying for one another and having one of the apostles lead you in a message from the Word of God on a Sunday morning, you were in trouble. You were in trouble. Did did you ever realize that in the early days of the church, unlike today, 2,000 years later, you couldn't come to church unless you were a Christian? They had secret codes and way of knowing each other. If you knocked on the door of the early morning assembly, uh, if someone knocked on our door and said, hey, I'm just looking for a good church that preaches the word, Gary's going to say, come on in. Uh, You know, what's your name? How you doing? We're glad to have you. Here's the tithe box. No, he he wouldn't say that. He would just welcome them, right? But back in the first century, they had to watch out for Roman and Jewish spies. And so... Uh, the writer here is is up against a tough battle, humanly speaking. It's the Word of God written under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he's got a tough task ahead. He's trying to show people who, in order to save themselves or their wife or their children from martyrdom, were saying, you know, I love Jesus and I'm glad He saved me and I'm born again, but I'm going to not show up on Sundays. That's why later in the book of Hebrews it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Because there's a great reward for that. It may cost you a lot, humanly speaking, but... There are some rewards that are far greater than anything you can have in life. And so he's trying to challenge them, "Don't, don't abandon it. Stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus. Three reasons. Number one, Jesus is the supreme expression of God's grace. Jesus is the supreme expression of God's grace. Now, God has always been a God of grace. Remember, God's attributes are eternal, He doesn't grow in His mercy or His love or His grace. God is God. He's eternal. He is equally gracious, equally loving, equally merciful, equally uh, just, equally righteous, equally holy, equally sovereign. All of His attributes are equal and constant. See, God is eternal. He is neither capable of improving nor deteriorating, right? So God's always been a God of grace, but what we see over time through the lens of time, space, and matter, and God's self-unveiling to mankind, is that in Jesus Christ we have the supreme expression of God's grace. And the writer jumps right in, as I said, verse 1, reminding his original readers and us today that God has spoken. Listen to what he says. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers, that's the Jewish fathers, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. God has spoken. He didn't remain silent after 400 intertestamental periods. Remember, Malachi was the last writing prophet. Then we have 400 silent years. Then the New Testament began to be written uh, as God unveiled more of his plan during the Roman Empire in the Greek language. In times past, God had spoken through prophets and priests and kings and, and donkeys and handwriting on a wall and all kinds of other revelation. Right? I think there's still a few donkeys today claiming to speak for the word, but that's another, for the Lord. But that's another story. But God today speaks through the Word, the written Word. Old, first in the first century, it was through His Son Jesus, the incarnate Word, and then ultimately, by the end of the first century, we had the complete revelation of God. I love this quote by Phillips Brooks. Phillips Brooks was a 19th century uh, American preacher from Boston, but I love him anyway. Uh, he was eloquent. He was an influential theologian. By the way, uh, Philip Brooks also wrote the lyrics to the, hymn, the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Okay. But uh, Philip Brooks said this, Jesus Christ is the condescension of divinity. And the exaltation of humanity. The condescension of divinity and the exaltation of humanity. In other words, he is the greatest example of humanity, sinless, yet tempted in every way. And yet he also makes God approachable. He he met us where we were. God in the flesh. Notice what the writer says in verse 1. Jesus brought a new day in God's plan of the ages. The writer makes reference here to various times. We've lived in various times in the past. We're now living in a time that he calls, by the way, the last days in which God is revealing himself in new and greater ways. I mentioned in our Bible study hour that the last days refers to the entire church age. So the last days were the days of the first century after the resurrection. And and we're still in the last days today. It's because this is the last day the last age, the last era, prior to the coming of the kingdom. It's the final piece in God's puzzle. Later the writer would put it this way in chapter 9. He then would have to would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, talking about Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. But now once at the end of the ages, plural. That's right. This age is the end of the ages. There's one age left, the kingdom, when Christ comes back and takes the throne. We're not living in the kingdom today. We're living in a kingdom. It's Satan's kingdom. The Bible says he, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. The Bible says he's the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of demons. Right. This is Satan's world for now. I don't understand why God is allowing him such free reign for so long. I mean, I can draw some conclusions based on God's word. I know that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance, God wants people to be saved, and maybe He's just waiting that maybe that one more person will be saved. But at some point in the future, this age is going to end, and we're going to begin the transition, We call it the Bible calls it the end times, into the final age, the kingdom age. See, right now we're living in what Paul called the fullness of the time, when God sent forth His Son. Elsewhere, Paul calls this the dispensation of the fullness of times. What is a dispensation? It just means a stewardship. A different economy, a different time and way in which God interacted with man. Not different ways of salvation. Everybody from Adam till the last person who walks the earth and gets saved is saved the same way. By grace through faith. Only one way to be saved. Abraham, the father of Israel, right? How was he saved? He was justified by faith. You cannot work your way into God's relationship with God. You cannot earn it. There's nothing you can do to be good enough. You can't get it by your heritage, by your lineage, by your baptism, by walking an aisle, signing a card, raising a hand. The only way a person can be redeemed and back into a right relationship with God is to receive the free gift paid for by the blood of Christ on your behalf by faith. Just as we receive a physical gift by clutching it with our hands, how do we receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life? By faith. Not faith in just anything. People can and do believe many things in life. Muslims believe in the five pillars of the faith to get them to paradise. Catholics believe in the seven sacraments to get them to salvation. But the Bible, God's self-revelation to mankind, says there's only one object of faith that will redeem you, and that is to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for our sins. If you've believed that, you have received, just as sure as if you took it with your physical hands, the gift of eternal life. Jesus is the supreme expression of God's grace if we think about God's unveiling of Himself through time. So if we look at God's plan of the ages, uh, we could go all the way back. You can see some time markers there on the screen. But to creation in the Garden of Eden, uh, we might call that uh, the Garden of Eden, the Age of Innocence. And then we've got the Age of Conscience, after Adam and Eve sinned. Then God institutes human government. Uh, And again, these aren't different ways of salvation. It's just things were different then. I mean, obviously it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that, Uh, say, for example, Abraham interacted with God differently than we do today, right? The mere fact that nobody came to Plum Creek Chapel this morning and brought with them a goat to put on the altar shows that there are different ways in which God interacts with mankind. We do so today through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then we had the age of the law and Israel and then the church age, and then there's going to be a Transition period. We often see these in Scripture, which is what we're talking about in our Sunday morning class at nine o'clock. But then we, uh, Christ comes back and ushers in the kingdom. So we're living right here in the last days. This is it in God's plan of the ages. There's not a bunch of other ages to come, where if we miss the point, then maybe later generations will get it. This is it. And and we don't know God's timetable, and we don't know when He's going to say it's time. So there's an urgency to the Christian mission and the Great Commission and and the Gospel. But not only did Jesus usher in a new day in God's plan, He ushered in a new way. God, in various times and in various ways. In the past, God spoke through wind, fire, handwriting on a wall, a still small voice, tablets of stone, I mentioned a donkey. But now He has given us His clearest and most supreme expression of His message of grace. It's like grace in high definition. Jesus is the culmination of God's salvation plan of history. With Jesus came the onset of a new and living way opened up for us. The veil was rent in two that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Every believer can now march into the throne room of God in heaven and lay our requests before Him. We don't have to go through a human mediator. We go through Christ who's made the way possible. For us, Each symbolic representation of Christ in the Old Testament told only a portion of the story. In Christ, the whole story comes together. For the original readers in the first century, they needed to not too hastily cast away, we're going to get to this in chapter 10, fling away, cast away their confidence in Christ. They need to think twice about it because there is nobody and nothing better than Christ. A lot of good things throughout God's plan of the ages, a lot of good things today. But as the readers needed to understand in the first century, and we do today, sometimes the good can be the enemy of the best. There are a lot of good things that keep people from accepting the best thing, Jesus Christ. But only Christ brings salvation. Only Christ. He's the supreme expression of God's grace. What good things are standing between you and our Savior? Even as a believer, sometimes we have a tendency to put things between us and the Lord, the same Lord that saved us, somehow we kind of push Him aside as we try to navigate these crazy, troubling times in our own flesh. And What we need to be reminded is that Jesus is the supreme expression of God's grace. But secondly, we also see that He's the superior example of God's grace. The superior example of God's grace. There are many examples of grace in biblical history, aren't there? I mean, there are examples of grace in their own lives. We can tell you amazing examples of grace just in the last year in our own lives. But if we look through history, we, we could think of the rescue of Noah and his family from the flood. That showed grace, didn't it? The story of Abraham and, and Isaac. That showed grace. The Day of Atonement in the Jewish religion, now called Yom Kippur, that, that demonstrates grace. The selection of an of an unconventional, unqualified shepherd boy to be king. That showed grace. God's provision for Elijah during the drought, grace. We could go on and on, but the important thing to remember is that the greatness of God's grace is exemplified in the greatness of Jesus Christ. The writer points out several specific characteristics of Christ Show him to be superior. First of all, he's the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. God's covenant program in the Old Testament finds its consummation in Christ. In fact, a thousand years before Christ came in the flesh, King David said this, Psalm 2. It's anonymous, but we know from the New Testament, Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 tell us David wrote it. So we can confidently say on the authority of Scripture that Psalm 2 is a Davidic Psalm. David wrote it and he said, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Talking about Christ, this is a messianic psalm. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and watch this. Here's here's why Jesus is the heir of all things. I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possessions. And Paul would later point out that we are joint heirs with Christ because he's the heir of all things. But not only is he the heir of all things, he's superior because he's the creator of all things. The writer of Hebrews says he made all the worlds he made all the worlds. That word world is the Greek word ion. Ion. Used 128 times in the New Testament. A very common word. It's translated ages, worlds, forever and ever, as a very common definition of it. Ion. It's where we get the English word eons, right? So when someone says, oh, that's been doing that for eons and eons or something, they mean forever. In other words, Jesus made everything that is not already eternal. And the only thing that's already eternal is God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, the triune God. There never has been a time when God didn't exist. Never will be a time when He doesn't exist. But He spoke the universe into existence. And His self-revelation to mankind begins with the story of that creating of time, space, and matter. Outside of the realm of eternity. In the beginning, that's time. God created the universe. Heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. So, And Jesus is the creator of all things. There's no greater example of grace than when the creator gives himself for the created. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Paul put it this way, for by him, Jesus, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is a superior example of God's grace because He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He's also the perfect reflection of God. The perfect reflection of God. He's the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. In Christ, that long-sought-after Shekinah glory of God has been revealed. Those who have seen Christ have experienced God's glory. Think about the number of times when God throughout... Human history revealed himself to people. And they fell flat on their faces to be in the presence of the glory of God. And in Christ, we see that happening in the Mount of Transfiguration. The brightness of his glory and the express image. That word image, you see that there? and highlighted in yellow. That's the only time that word is ever used in the New Testament. And it's the Greek word character. It's a cognate for our English word character. Interesting, isn't it? It used to refer to the mark or figure burned into a coin or carved into a seal. And just as the image on a coin corresponds precisely to the device that was used to make that mold, so too Jesus bears the very stamp, the very impress of God's nature because He is God. The writer goes on to say that Jesus is superior because He's all-powerful like God. Because He is God. Upholding all things by the word of His power. The same word that spoke creation into being is able to sustain it no matter what we face. And that's really one of the key points in the book of Hebrews that they needed to know and we need to know today. We serve a powerful God. No matter what we face, it is no match for the all-powerful one. Uh, Jesus also is the one and only Savior of the world. The writer goes on to say, He Himself purged our sins. Only Jesus is capable of redeeming mankind. Just as God prophesied He would back in Genesis 3.15. But not only that, He's also the exalted Lord. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The majesty on high is just a metonym that refers to God and His presence. And there Jesus sits, Not on the earthly messianic throne, which he will take someday when he makes all things do and comes and rules the world in perfect peace and righteousness and judgment, but it's a throne in waiting. It's a throne in waiting. He's there interceding for us. The next time you think about Jesus, really think about him. I want you to picture him sitting on a throne. And I want you to picture him sitting on the edge of his seat, waiting for the Father's command to come and make all things new once again. And then picture the throne where Christ is going to sit when He comes back to earth in fulfillment of prophecy and sits in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem on the throne just like the prophets said that He would. Then He will actually function as the King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, the four offices of Christ, prophet, priest, king, and judge. He came as prophet during his earthly ministry. He is now our priest. The book of Hebrews is going to have a lot to say about that, sitting on the throne at the right hand of God, interceding for us. So he's functioning as priest today. He will come back someday and function as king when he takes the throne. And ultimately at the great white throne, he will be judge. And those not found written in the book of life will receive justice instead of the grace and mercy they could have had if they would receive the free gift paid for by the blood of Christ. So the the writer reminds his readers where Christ is, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, because his entire letter is going to be a a, a continuous exhortation to focus on him. Remember the famous verse in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse uh, 2? fixing, the old King James says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Where is he? He's sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Where's your focus? Where's your focus? As we get ready to close, I, I want to show you a short two-minute video to illustrate focus. This is amazing. So let me set the stage for you. This is five years ago, a a man uh, has an eagle that he has trained, and he was trying to set the world record for an eagle being set loose as high up as possible and still being able way below to see his master and come and find its way back to its, his arm. So they went to Dubai, uh, the largest city in the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and it has more than 100 modern high-rises, but the tallest building in Dubai is the Burj Khalifa, it stands more than a half a mile tall. It was built in 2010, and to this day remains both the tallest building in the world and, in fact, the tallest man-made structure in the world. And I want you to watch as they the video starts with them. Uh, I don't know who was the, the, the team that was tasked with bringing this eagle up to the top of the pinnacle of that tower. Uh, it wouldn't have been me, but somebody did, and then they let it loose, and then the man is down below, the master, with his arm in a baseball field, And you're going to watch as this eagle is let loose, and then he just looks, and he looks, and he looks. And you can't even make out buildings, much less people from our perspective. But this eagle is looking and looking, and then finally he's got a GoPro or something attached to it. And finally, man, it takes off. It spots its master, and it just makes a beeline right for his master, and they set the world record. So watch as we see this unfold. So they're bringing the eagle up to the very top, there's a little pinnacle or tower at the top of this building. And then they let it go. Now just watch, you look at him, he's looking around. Where is he, where's my master? Looking and looking. It's more than a a half a mile up. And then there's his master. Here I am. Come to me. Still hasn't spotted him. master says, here I am, here I am. No, he's not up there. Look down. Look down, here I am. And then finally, he catches his eye, or I guess the master catches his eye. I don't know if he can even see that bird up that high, but he knows where the tower is and the bird was let loose from the tower. But then he spots him, and watch what happens. Right there, and he set the record. You know, during these trying times, we, like that original audience in Hebrews, we need to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the way that amazing eagle stayed focused on his master. He's the superior example of God's grace. And we don't have time to go through all the verses, but the, the last section here reminds us that Jesus is also the sufficient executor of God's grace. What's an executor? Well, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, an executor is someone who executes something. They're they, they they're someone that's appointed to execute a will, the will of the One in authority. I, this is what I want to happen. So they appoint an executor to make sure that that happens. And that's exactly the role Jesus plays in the Godhead. He's the executor, uh, essentially a steward. And, uh, and the writer wants his audience to know that Jesus is sufficient. Uh, God has appointed many representatives through the ages, prophets and priests and kings. But Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, is the final And best executor. His role is final and sufficient. There's no other need for candidates to apply. He is in. The application process is closed. And the writer says, He is so much better than the angels. Remember the law was appointed through angels. But grace has been high definition manifested through Christ. He's the sufficient executor of God's grace. The Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was first written were on the verge of making a pretty serious mistake. They were on the verge of abandoning Christianity and returning to their old way of life in Judaism, all because they took their eyes off of Christ. Nothing wrong with angels. The Bible has a lot to say about angels. Nothing wrong with tradition. Nothing wrong with customs. But they should never distract us from the King of Kings. And today, if we're going to withstand what lies ahead, we've got to remember that Jesus is the supreme expression of grace, the superior example, and the sufficient executor of God's grace. So what's the takeaway? Well, Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins. That's who Jesus is in the simplest statement. You can say it in ten words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And If you've placed your faith in Him and Him alone, then you've been born again. You've been once for all rescued from the penalty of the sin. But at the same time, Jesus is, as we're about to sing, our best friend who can sustain us through the trials and tribulations of life. So the takeaway is simply this, in the days to come, no matter what you're facing, no matter what lies ahead personally or nationally or even as a church, stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus. There's no better source for grace. And boy, we need grace.